This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. My name's Am Sokol, and today's guest is Jude Atwood, author of the brand new middle grade novel, Maybe There Are Witches. This is Jude's debut novel, and it won the Kraken Prize for middle grade fiction. It is a delightful story of a young girl who comes to a new town after her mother inherited a very creepy Victorian bed and breakfast on the outskirts of a small town in Illinois. And she's struggling to adjust. And as she discovers different things in the house, she finds a diary of a long dead relative and finds out that there were some creepy things that have gone on in her family's history, as well as the fact that in this diary, it starts predicting things that are going on in her own life as well. It's a really, really awesome, creepy story. And in this conversation, we talk about kind of how its origins were and potentially being a horror movie, which is, you know, kind of where all of the creepy things come from, even though it transitioned to a middle grade novel. What we lead off the conversation with is something that I am also deeply passionate about. Jude loves baking. We get into the different pies and cakes and things that he likes to make for him and his partner, as well as for all of the friends and family in his life. Uh, We also talk about our shared love of the great British baking show and so, so much more. It's such a wonderful conversation and it definitely made me want to start baking. And Jude was true to his word in the conversation we had and did send me a recipe that I am going to check out for a specific pie that we talk about. So you can hear all about that in the conversation in just a bit. Um, But along the lines of Jude's new book, Maybe There Are Witches, I want to give you another really wonderful middle grade creepy novel that I adore that came out a few years ago called Scritch Scratch by Lindsay Curie. It is another book that it's described as for fans of the Goosebumps series, which I love because that is exactly what it reminded me of. It's a chilling ghost story based on real Chicago history about a very creepy spirit, an unlucky girl, and a haunting mystery that will tie everything together. Uh, The main character isn't really interested in paranormal things, but her family is uh, hosts a ghost-themed Chicago bus tour. So it is always around her life. And then very, very creepy things start happening. And she can't decide if it's just all a hoax or if it is her truly being haunted. That's Scratch Scratch by Lindsay Curie. And I do think you should check out both of these books, especially in tandem. They are delightful, spooky summer ghost stories that I think you will adore. 
and if you ever want to get a hold of me, you can, of course, always reach me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. There you can send me any of your passions, the things that you love doing. I love reading about those. And you can also always send me any of your five-star reviews that you've left of the podcast, and I'll give you some customized book recommendations. You can also find me on TikTok and Instagram at Passions and Prologues, where I'm always talking about bookish-related things, sharing the latest reads that I'm checking out, and a whole bunch more. Okay, that is all of the housekeeping. I'm not going to keep you any longer. I am so excited for you guys to listen to this discussion with debut author Jude Atwood on Passions and Prologues. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Okay, Jude, what is something you are super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? I don't think that's any of your business, Adam. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, uh, my passion is baking. And it's something I came to later in life. Like I was always one of those guys who never used his kitchen. And then it's, it's really corny because about six, seven years ago, I started to watch the Great British Baking Show on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I didn't watch it because I liked baking. Like I watched it because I liked British people. And I just became obsessed. I powered through a few seasons. And after, I think after two seasons, I thought like, I could try this. I, okay, you have no way of knowing two things that this makes this uh, such a wonderful topic. One, I have a, a 16 year old niece who since she was five or six, I have been doing baking days with. So we like, it's to the point now where Somehow, as a 16-year-old teenager, she still thinks I'm cool enough to hang out with, which is great. <laughs> but we, we do baking all the time in the sense of like our text thread to each other is exclusively ba- things we want to bake. And the other thing is uh, my partner and I watch Great British Bake Off as well. And we literally, it's almost like um, how a lot of people might put on like Friends or Seinfeld. We call it emotional support bake-off. So it totally, and it's, it's our emotional support. It's like our our like safety blanket at the end of the night, just something to watch that makes us feel good. So let's start at the beginning. What got you into baking? Like what were your kind of first things that that you started dappling with and why did it give you the bug, I suppose? Well, I, so I, I knew how to cook. I just didn't. And I grew up in, on a farm in rural Illinois. And I guess this is kind of retro, but the local paper had a program, the newspaper, called Kids Cook. And so every summer, there would be recipes and instructions. And my, my mom wanted to make sure that all of her boys um, knew how to cook, which was mm-hmm. kind of progressive, I think, in the 80s in, in that part of the country. And so at the end, you know, you'd follow these recipes and you'd learn to crack an egg and measure ingredients. And then at the end, your parents would fill out a form and then the newspaper would send you a certificate and it would publish your name in the, in the paper, which, which was, I mean, that felt special at the time. Mm-hmm. And then um, after uh, yeah, I started watching the show, I wanted to make something I'd never made before. And so I think 
I made my own birthday cake one year and I went with a lemon self-saucing pudding. That's amazing. Right? Because I, I mean, and the word pudding has sort of a different meaning, I think, in the UK than, than here. And I just like they, they did self-saucing puddings as a, as a competition on the show. And I thought, mm-hmm. like, I have no idea what that is. So I found a, a recipe on the BBC's website. And it wasn't super difficult, except that I had no mixer at the time. And um, the leavening came from whipped egg whites. And so it is, it is really labor intensive to beat egg whites to, to a stiff peak. So I learned that that day. You are a bit of a masochist. Yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> that is, incre- yeah, that, that is something for me from a baking standpoint, like I said, I've, I've been baking cookies and stuff with, with my niece for a long, long time now, but what really got me into loving baking was like every generic story about the pandemic starting was wanting to make bread because we all have the time to do it. And I, I'm like you, like I've always known how to cook and I've always really liked cooking. Um, and I always jokingly say like cooking is like jazz. Like if anyone's like, how did you make this? I can't give them any specific amounts of this was how much cayenne or here's how much oregano I used because I just sort of throw it into taste. But baking, you have to be like, I, when I first started baking, I was like, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just two and, a half ca- two and a half cups of flour. Does that really matter? It, it really, really matters. Like that stuff is so important that you, you keep the specifics. And so after you made the, you know, if you made the cake, you know, did that sort of open up when you started, like when you tried it, you're like, oh my God, I want to do more things or sort of where did that take you? Well, it, it, I mean, it was kind of a revelation and it, it's it's kind of a neat cake. I'm sure you can Google it, but it's the idea is that it forms its own sauce that kind of sinks to the bottom of the of the yeah. dish. Um, and uh, then I made a chocolate self-sauce. Like I'm very sort of sequential. Uh-huh. Um, but in the last maybe six or seven years, I think I've tried 40 different pies oh, wow. to the point where I would say like pies are kind of my specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my my boyfriend is more of a bread uh, Baker. Fortunately, he's very patient and was willing to kind of come <laughs> along for the the ride. And I've done like I'll I'll do birthday cakes for whoever is like I want an excuse to make yeah. something. And it is a little frustrating though because I think when you come to this hobby through reality competition television, you want there to be a challenge every time. Mm-hmm. And uh, most real people just like simple basic things. Um, and so I'll be like, Hey, what's your favorite kind of pie? And it's always apple. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what if we do apple habanero? And, mm-hmm. uh, and the other thing I've learned is that most kids won't eat anything. And so you have to kind of dial it down a notch when you're baking for chill. But like, if you let me go nuts, I'll do, you know, uh, lemon lavender cake is probably the best. Mm-hmm. I, what I have found again, my niece is, she's 16 and she's very mature for a 16 year old. Like we, it's so funny to me. She has three younger siblings that she calls the kids. Like she's just like, acts like she's one of the adults. Um, but what, one of my reminders that she is still a teenager is how sweet she wants to make things. Like she will send me some cupcake that she wants to make that has like three inches of frosting on top of it. And I'm like, Grace, can we? what if we just dialed it back a little bit? And so is, is that something like, have you found, it's, it's, you, you mentioned lemon a couple of times, which I'm on board with, but I was going to say is, are there like, are there flavor profiles you find yourself drawn more towards in the baking world? 
That's an interesting question. I, I did get, once somebody knows that you're into something, it becomes kind of the, the go-to gift. Yeah. Um, there was an Onion article years ago about making the mistake of telling people in the office you like penguins. And then it's always, but it's, it's when it's something practical, it's kind of nice. And so uh, a woman that I work with um, at the beginning of the pandemic, just as a, not for a holiday or anything, just sent me, uh, shipped me a bunch of different flowers. Um, or types of flour, rather. Yeah. And so learning to bake with like almond flour and potato flour. And so I think we made a, a Swedish cake, sandkaka with potato flour. And I like that because it's like a good breakfast cake. Like it's not super sweet. And so I've been, um, I, we just watched up, my boyfriend and I just saw um, our neighbor in a play. And in the play, they talk about, uh, again, it's lemon, but a lemon polenta almond cake. And so we decided to try that. And so we're, we're still trying to perfect the recipe and find the right one. But um, that has its, its almond flour. That, yeah, that, so my, my niece's uh, mom, my sister, is probably an easier way of saying that. My, <laughs> my sister has celiac and she has had celiac since before anyone knew what gluten was. And so when other people say they're, they're gluten intolerant or they have a gluten allergy, I have to explain like, no, my sister can like, get cancer from this. Like she can't have. Mm-hmm. So we grew up in a, a household where once she got diagnosed, like my parents' house has everything was marked like GF, like there'd be a gluten-free peanut butter and, a, and this. So this is all to say, we tend to bake a lot with almond flour when I'm baking with my niece uh, for that exact reason, because almond flour is, is gluten-free because it's, it's, you know, from almonds, but I, that's really the only one I have, I've used other than like wheat flour and things like that. You mentioned pie. I want to circle back to pies because I'm a, I'm a huge pie guy. So what, what are some of the best, or maybe even most unique pies that you have made so far? Uh, well, I found a recipe for a key lime watermelon pie, or it's a watermelon key lime pie. And it, it's sort of, I mean, it's a custard pie, but the watermelon juice sort of mm. cuts the key lime sweetness a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then I did, I, I decided, because I, I, I've never really done a competition in terms of baking, but I decided to do the Orange County Fair uh, pie competition. And I practiced um, a whole bunch of variations on blueberry pie. Mm-hmm. And I think blueberry cardamom pie with... Um, I, technically, I don't think the look of the pie mattered for the, you know, for the judging, but I wanted to do like a mid-century lattice just to be fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I made like eight or nine versions of that. And that, um, the last one I made was in March 2020, and then they canceled the fair. And then they did not bring back the pie competition for the next two years. And so this year, I think, is the first time they have it. And I, I have a book coming out, and I'm like, I'm a little busy this summer. Uh, well... And we're going to get to the book in just a second. But before, I'm just making a note for myself because I'm going to make you send me the recipe for this blueberry card. Because blueberry and cardamom, those are very much... Uh, you actually, you mentioned Swedish cakes. There's a Swedish cardamom, like a very famous like cardamom... I want to call it a bun, but it's sort of like a small... It's almost like a cinnamon roll, but it's Swedish. And they they wrap it. I'm using my hands. No one's going to see it on a podcast, but... <laughs> They wrap it in a very intricate way, but it is like a, it's a very cardamom heavy uh, Swedish bun. And I made those once and like discovered my adoration for cardamom. So I'm just making a note that I'm going to ask you for that when we get done. Fair. Let the record show Adam is making a rude gesture on camera. That's right. Um, exactly. <laughs> not at all. 
Um, no, and it's it's funny because I think there are spices that I just didn't grow up with that mm-hmm. you you know kind of discuss so cardamom as well. And also, I learned that cardamom and cardamom are like both acceptable pronunciations of that spice. Yeah. Um, I made matcha green tea cookies for a uh, for a fundraiser, mm-hmm. and there's another that's uh, it's not the sweetest in the world, but yeah, uh, with a little bit of um, oh gosh, white chocolate chips. It uh, yeah, it's and there's things like um like tahini. I would never yeah. normally think to bake with tahini or make like tahini cookies, but because I too and am obsessed with Great British you know baking show, they I start to see people use that in stuff and I've been like oh that's a really interesting way so I I know what you mean like that's been one of my favorite things I think about baking is finding new flavors that like you said I were both midwesterners when we were from when we grew grew up like there's just stuff you start to discover that is really interesting so for you this will transition into your book in just a second but where do you how do you look seek to find new recipes to try with how much you've done Oh, I am, I'm really basic. And so um, if I see something in a, a show that I'm watching, or if I read something in a book and it sounds interesting, then I will Google the, the name of the recipe plus the word simple, because <laughs> I want the first time I make it to be, uh, to be a little bit simple. Um, but um, I did, one thing that occurred to me is, in addition to discovering new uh, flavors, um, I realized that like there's stuff I ate when I was a kid that I never see anymore. Mm. So I hunted down rhubarb because that's really hard to find on the West Coast. And I did a whole bunch of rhubarb uh, stuff. But, you know, I would say the inspiration comes from like I saw the play Dinner with Friends um, mm-hmm. last month and that the characters talk about this great cake that they're eating. And I was like, oh, I should. I'm sure it's real. I'll try that. Yeah. And we once we made a dish that we saw on on anime. Uh, uh, show. Um, uh, it's, I shouldn't, it's a strange show. It was on Netflix called Food Wars, and we did this vegetable terrine, which was super, like five layers of different sort of gelatinized pureed vegetables. And so it's beautiful, but I, I wouldn't do it again because, oh my gosh, it took all day. The, I feel like that's, that's so much of, there's so much, there's so many things in cooking that I you could you just describing it I can hear how complicated it is but there's other things that I don't think people realize like we I was at my brother's house this weekend and uh, he made potato salad it was really good it's like Jay why don't you ever make potato salad and he goes because this was such a process just like you things you don't think about like for potato salad you have to boil it let it cool down cut it up make the like it was just it was very interesting when you that you see things that look very simple. And are extremely elaborate. Um, so I, I want to ask something. You know, I always ask every author who comes on, like, if slash how this has influenced your writing. So does this, you know, found love of baking? Does this come into play when you're starting to think about writing? And I mentioned you have your first novel coming out, which we're going to talk about in just a second. Well, I wish <clears throat> I wish it had a more direct connection to my writing because that would really. Uh, makes sense. But I think um, in some ways it can be, both of them can be kind of a solitary hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think both are ways to kind of show off. And I think that there's a, you know, of all the sort of personalities people can have, I think as a 
I was a middle child, the second of four, and I think I was always looking for ways to show off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that writing and baking both kind of play into that. And um, I also kind of like that baking as opposed to cooking is something you could often do the day before. Mm. Like I like to stay up late and, you know, roll out the pie crust and I'm, I've always been a night owl. Mm-hmm. And so rather than having to get up and get everything ready for a, a meal, I like to kind of be like, okay, everything's in place. And I think writing, I tend to, you know, I, I'll write in coffee shops, but I, I like to kind of be in, you know, my own space. And um, so, yeah, I, I'd say there's, there's that. And then I, I wish that there were more baked goods in the book that I just wrote so that I mm-hmm. could be like, yeah, there's, but um, next time, next time I'll think about synchronicity. <laughs> so and that's okay there are lots uh, there's lots of um like so you you wrote a, a middle grade novel called baby there are witches and there are lots of i've seen like middle grade like graphic novels and things that do have food in them so like you said that it could be the second time around but uh for for my listeners you know you're we're recording this at the end of may your, your book comes out on on june 13th so can you kind of introduce them to your new novel and, and sort of where you got the idea from for sure. Um, well, the the pitch of maybe there are witches is a thirteen year old girl <clears throat> moves to a small town in Illinois, and she discovers a diary, uh, hidden diary that belonged to her great 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 grandmother, uh, who was executed for witchcraft in the nineteenth century. Um, and then, as she <clears throat> as she starts to discover hidden messages. Uh, directly to her in the diary, she realizes that she and uh, her new friends are the only people who can avert a deadly catastrophe. So mm-hmm. it's a, a little bit of a, a supernatural adventure. And um, I actually got the idea years ago. Um, I, I'm embarrassed how long it took me to finish the book, but I um, I went to film school many years ago. And so I've always had like a list of like movie ideas and just sort of things that may some to take shape. And so this came from a list of horror movie ideas. I thought it would be kind of creepy if someone found a book in a house that they had never lived in before that that contained messages to them. Yeah. And uh, first off, when when you sent me like in, at first a message on Instagram, you're like, hey, I'd love to come on and talk about this. When I looked at the book, I, I'm such a huge like witchy book fan. So I was immediately in then, but also um, a good friend of mine, Mallory O'Meara, who has been on the show a couple of times. We both discussed how much we love books about books. So you've got that as well. Like, I, I totally agree with you. I feel like there's so many wonderful horror stories, horror books, horror movies that do involve that idea of like discovering a mysterious book that you definitely shouldn't open and then definitely shouldn't read out loud. And then so how, you know, thinking through having all these stories, and you said going to film school previously, and, uh, you know, you're, you're a professor now, what, how did you decide to turn this into a middle grade novel? Like, what did you ever, was there ever envisioning writing it for a different age? Or I'm always interested to hear why authors chose the kind of outlet that they did for their story. It's it's wild that you say that because I when I started I I really thought I was writing a young adult novel mm-hmm. and I think I and I, I mean I guess as a layperson the distinction is sort of subtle that I think most people will say YA to refer to sort of everything that's not a, a adult but I, by the way I'll pause and say what I've learned over the last few months is that 
Uh, the only people who refer to adult books and adult literature when they're talking about just, you know, novels mm-hmm. uh, is people who write kids' books because we always try to make it yeah. there. But no, I I wrote it and the, the kids were a year older in the first draft. And um, I uh, I tried to get an agent and I was querying. And um, one of the things that the people suggest is you you need to have recent, comparable, successful books to compare yours to. And I, I respect that. I think everybody thinks like, oh, what I've done is genius and there's no comparison, but I, I think that's not practical. Um, and so I was reading a lot of, of YA books and I realized like, oh, this is this is not what I've written. YA literature is really um, often very serious and intense. And I wrote an adventure about some kids in a small town. So, um, so I rewrote it again. So it was kind of an accidental middle grade book. But I knew, I, I mean, I knew what I liked when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, I finished it during the pandemic cause I, I don't know if you know about this, but w- we had a lot of time on our hands. We did. And, and so I'm like, I have to, I'm going to go, you know, and I did less baking during the pandemic because it's so hard to finish a whole cake or pie when mm-hmm. it's just me and my partner. Um, and so then I, I had this novel sitting around for almost a year and I was, you know, trying to sell it. And I don't think it had ever occurred to me to enter contests. Um, but then I started to enter different contests and I ended up, uh, winning one and got a contract out of that. So it, it, I really don't tell my publisher, but like, I, I didn't know what middle grade, uh, literature was really when I started the, (laughs) the book. Yeah. You touched on something about writing that I don't think a lot of readers realize people who don't do it is you, you set out to write a wholly original story, you know, from your heart or from your brain or from wherever it is, like you want to tell the story and you want it to be so unique and so original and like this thing, like you said, that no one could possibly think of or come up with. And it very well may be that you end up writing a story like that. But then when you try to pitch it, the first thing they ask you is like, well, who's the audience? (laughs) Yeah. One of those things where you have to, like, it's tough because you have to make it quote unquote, related to something people like to go read or grab while also making it wholly original. Like that's, that's something I'm struggling with personally. So I'm, I'm curious if you felt that same way. Well, it is. I mean, it's super frustrating, but it's also that there's an expectation that you be very specific. And so one, you know, one thing I, I was advised is don't compare it to a book that's more than five years old. And so anything, at least when you're trying to sell it. And so anything that I read growing up that was obviously an influence on me, um, you know, I loved Ellen Raskin and um, The Westing Game. And mm-hmm. it, she passed away in the 80s. Like, I, there are no uh, recent books there to compare it to. And so I, um, but it was, it was exciting learning about what, you know, the new stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, it was, we, and just to touch on the other thing you said, though, is that it, it I think maybe because I was a film student, um, one of the things, it's not that as a writer, you're necessarily imitating the stuff that you're seeing and reading, but I think sometimes, um, you know, getting a, a, at least for me, getting a film degree, there was a lot of talk about structure and I had to take mm-hmm. a story structure class and screenwriting class. And so I think in terms of like, well, what, what do I want people to feel at this point? And mm-hmm. so sometimes I feel like I'm trying to steal a feeling from somebody else's work. And so it's not like I'm plagiarizing. It's just like, oh, wow, there's a real, I want to shock here. I, I want to, that, that's such a, 
but I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say it that way. I want to steal a feeling that you get from another story because that's, I know exactly what you mean. Like there are so many books that, and I talk about them a lot, like The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern and this book, Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk by Kathleen Rooney. They have a feeling. They have like a, whether it's a nostalgia or a like moment where you just can't believe where like a twist or a turn, that is such a incredible way of, of thinking about it. And, you know, I, like for your, like, I feel like your book, to, like, it reminds me of those middle grade books I used to read when I was a kid, like whether it was like the R.L. Stein books or things like that, where I was like, I was excited to turn the next page, but also like kind of doing it with like your hand over one eye sort of a situation. Like, I, I know it's, that's such a good way of, this isn't even a question. I just really love that stealing a feeling. That's a really wonderful way of putting it. When you decided, okay, like you said, I'm going to write the story. I'm going to enter some contests and, and these things. Like what, you know, when you realized the story began to take shape, you know, what, what are the next steps for people who might not know? Because like I said, there's, there's artwork involved and there's, there's finding an agent. Like what were the steps you took after you wrote this to have it go from an idea in your brain to a book that you're now, you know, getting ready to share with the world? Well, I, uh, that's a, a good question. And uh, I guess the first thing to know is, oh my gosh, it's frustrating. Like, it's <laughs> just an incredibly frustrating time. And I, I ended up not uh, getting an agent, although one thing I, I sort of realized is that um, when I was pitching it as a middle grade book, I got a lot more nibbles, a lot more of like, oh, can you send us, you know, more of the manuscript. Um, but the the big thing that I really realized during the the whole promotion process is that no one reads it that i just i just wanted someone to read the whole book and mm -hmm. obviously that's a big ask you know i think that it, especially for people who work in publishing like it's yeah. just, they have to read a ton and i just i just wanted someone uh and uh, they only read the first 10 pages mm -hmm. for the most part and so i just kept rewriting the first 10 pages over and over trying to and i think that you know, if I were famous or if I were really well known, I might try a book that begins slowly and that kind of, kind of eases into uh, a story. And I thought, oh no, I have to, I have to really hook a stranger who wants to say no immediately. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something to I just think about from the writing process and from the, the promotion process. So are you currently? I know this. I, this is like such a tough question to ask authors who are just promoting their book as it's coming out. Are you working, are you like thinking through what may come after this? Is it, or is that something you're just not at yet? God, well, the other thing I guess to know is that the process from um, signing a contract to publishing is incredibly long. Um, I think at a major publisher, it's a year. And I am with an indie publisher, um, Regal House Publishing and their, their label Fitzroy Books. And their, um, their, production process is two years. And so I have had a lot of time for, and you know, it's, what's funny is that the, the actual editing from my end, I get just a, a few weeks to kind of go over changes and then, yeah. you know, you send it in and then you wait. And um, so I've, I felt like I will kick myself if I, if I didn't finish something else. Um, and I will say I did not, but I'm halfway through uh, a, a follow-up. It's not a sequel, but I, I decided I'll stick with this and try another scary middle grade book. And so I don't have a title yet, but uh, I, I'm excited. And it also is set in rural Illinois. So I've decided uh, I want yeah. to have a, a 
there's a little genre there. Yeah. And so I do, I am also curious because you also do artwork, you paint and you draw cartoons. Did you do the artwork for the book? I did not. Um, I, and my publisher actually asked if I wanted to, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was very flattering. Um, but my, uh, uh, my mindset was, since this is my first book, I don't want the person who designs my cover to be doing it for the first time in their life. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, uh, it's funny though, because th- we had a little Zoom meeting with other writers who are kind of in the same um, front list season, the the summer 2023. And I think it's because the publisher just wants to get all the questions out of the way at the same time. Yeah. And the first thing they said is, you do not have any control over what is on the cover of your book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we, we fill out a worksheet, but they, I think they wanted everyone to know that you do not get to, to you know, nitpick what the cover of the book looks like. So interesting. That is something I never would have thought about. But having now, you know, interviewed and, and chatted with a, a couple of different authors from from Regal, this, I, that's that's really interesting. I'm going to have to pick people's brains about that afterwards. That's I, I like that a lot. Um, so I always end each conversation by asking the author for a recommendation of some kind. It can be, uh, it can be a book. It can be a recipe. It could be, you know, I'm not going to let you give everyone else blueberry cardamom pie. That's going to be mine. I'm going to steal. But um, yeah, what is something you want to recommend to my my listeners that you think they should know more about? Oh my gosh. Um, I am going to recommend something that I think everybody knows about, but it's the kind of thing that it has to occur to you to do it. Um, I recommend going to see a play. Um, and in particular, uh, go see some local theater. Um, I, it took me a, a good while after the pandemic to start going out, but, uh, you know, there even in small towns, even in small communities, there's often like some type of local theater. And I, one thing I learned sort of talking to my students is that lots of them, it just it has never occurred to them in their lives to mm-hmm. to check that out. And so I feel like you might get a good story. You know, you might uh, get something you enjoy, but it, it's also sort of a, a communal experience. So that's, uh, I guess that's my recommendation. I love that. Jude, I... I'm so excited for your book and I am so excited for everyone to go check it out. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. I'm Anne Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 